from the basement of the Bob and Tom Studios. It's that Josh Arnold podcast. My, my goodness, hello. Oh, so nice to see you. Welcome back to that Josh Arnold podcast. Starring me. <laughs> oh, I'm happy. Uh, well, I'm, I'm very happy. Why? Because my guest this week, oh, one of my favorite people, it's you. That's right. Thrilled to see you. Thank you very much. If it's your first time being here, well, welcome. If it's not, if you're a returning visitor, oh my gosh, I can't thank you enough for coming back. Really is uh, good to have you, and uh, I am down here in the Bob and Tom basement. Oh boy, it's there was a flood last week. They've cleaned it up, but it is musty down here. Just that awful mildew smell, and uh, oh boy, it, it it smells like um, like fancy cheese. You know what I mean? You ever go to one of those parties and they have like a cheese tray? And you, you, you just bite into one cube or slice or whatever, and you go, oh, what? Who could possibly enjoy this? It's just t- way too, well, cheese is a mold, as we know, and it's way too moldy. This is not, this simply doesn't taste good, and I don't believe that anybody really likes it. I simply don't believe it. A lot of cheese tastes like a haunted house, and it's time that we admit that. And um, quit pretending that some of that fancy cheese is actually edible. It, uh, if you enjoy it, hey, you know what? Good for you. I wish I did. I don't like. I, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm complaining about it, but I wish I. Li- That's why I'm complaining. I wish I liked all cheeses, but I don't, and uh, it bothers me. I want to like everything. But anyway, uh, welcome back to that Josh Arnold podcast. The third week in November. I hope. Uh, it's going well for you. I hope, you know, as the weather gets a little more crisp and cold that you're finding ways and, you know, as it gets darker sooner that you're finding ways to keep yourselves, um, well, uh, comfortable. Uh, you know what? Last week I mentioned having a, uh, seasonal effectiveness disorder or sad light and, uh, that I, I, I shine on myself for like 20 or 30 minutes every day. Um, and a lot of you wanted to know what brand I have. The answer is I simply don't know. I bought it. On, <laughs> I bought it on Amazon, and um, it's it looks like a tablet, like an iPad or whatever, and it stands up, and uh, it's crazy bright. Um, it seems to help. So uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry I can't answer uh, what brand it was. Um, I don't. I don't even know if it's written on it. You know what? I didn't look. So how about that? I don't know. I don't know the. <laughs> I read those. Some of you, a handful, wrote in and said, "Hey, which which satellite do you have?" And uh, since I couldn't remember it at the top, I just went, "Oh, I I, I, I don't know," and I didn't bother looking. <laughs> so I apologize. Uh, but anyway, you can find uh, there's a plethora of them on Amazon, and uh, yeah, find one that works. I would imagine they all kind of are the same, but uh, yeah, mine looks mine is about the exact si- size and shape of an iPad, so. Um, and I like it. This week's sponsor, oh, uh, it's a good one. As you know, we don't have, you know, technically real sponsors. So we, uh, we're sponsored by things, uh, well, this week's sponsor, a comfortable chair. My goodness, don't you enjoy a comfortable chair? So much better than those uncomfortable chairs. Ah, uh, sometimes you just need a good sit. So you sit down, and hopefully it's soft, and it kind of conforms to your body a little bit, and you can kick back and read or watch a movie or television or uh, just talk with friends and family. I mean, whatever you need to do in a comfortable chair. I hope your work chair is a comfortable chair. That's important. You spend a lot of time in that, don't you? You don't need uh, anything that's going to cause you discomfort. Boy, oh, boy. So, yes, a comfortable chair. Thank you for sponsoring us this week. I'm uh, so proud of uh, many of you. Last week, uh, we, uh, well, every week we take a visit to the vocabulary station, and last week the word was uh, bizarre, macropicide, which means the killing of a kangaroo, and I challenged all of you, as I do each week with a new word, to use it. And many of you told me about how you were able to use macropicide in conversation. Now, 
Um, most of uh, what you, most of the letters you you sent me, um, had to do with uh, talking about the terrible, terrible fires in Australia. But that's uh, you know, while it's a, a brutal topic, it's still. Uh, that is a, an opportune time to mention macropocide because I'm sure many kangaroos did perish. So, uh, yeah. But, boy, oh, boy. You know what? Why don't we hop on that train now and go ahead and pull pull right on in to Vocabulary Station. Ah, yes. Doesn't that sound? <laughs> I love that sound. Love it. An old uh, steam engine. My gosh. Reminds me of uh, uh, Six Flags when I was a kid, going to Six Flags, and they had the theme park. Uh, you know, a lot of many amusement parks have the old train there, and uh, boy, that sound is just uh, just great. Ah, vocabulary station. Here we are. This this week's word, um, another weird one. One that I, boy, I you, you, sometimes you see you come across these words like macropocide, and you go, I why, I had no idea there was one word for that. And this is uh, this is a good one. It's a noun, and it's uh, acercicomic. Um, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong because um, I've only read I had only read this word, and um, I, I have never heard it said. And so I um, went online to find out how to pronounce it, and there are like four. Every different page had a different way to pronounce it. Um, so I'm going to say acercicomic, man, acercicomic, you know, anyway, it's A-C-E-R-S-E-C-O-M-I-C, acercicomic, um, or acercicomic. I, I do think the emphasis is on the C-O-M, but it means someone who has never had a haircut. <laughs> Isn't that wild that there's a word for that? So uh, let's say uh, a man were uh, raised by wolves from being a, a baby, left in the forest or whatever, and the wolves raise him, and uh, he he walks out of the forest one day, and he's got hair down to his ankles. Well, my gosh, if that isn't an, uh, a Sarasa comic, I don't know who is. Someone who's never had their hair cut. Boy, what a word. So try to use that this week. Maybe you're looking a bit disheveled, and you go, boy, I'm, you know, the way my hair is, uh, well, you know, with quarantine, I haven't gotten my hair cut, and uh, I'm looking like quite the Acerca comic, or Acerca comic. I think you could pronounce it essentially however you, because I, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't, there were four different pronunciations, as I said, so. And why wouldn't there be? Who's using this word? <laughs> well, I am now, and I hope you are too. Try to use it this week. If you do, send me a message, Josh podcast at bobandtom.com. I'd like to know how you used it. I hope you uh, are enjoying November. I hope that you had many things that you enjoyed this week, and I'd like to share with you what I enjoyed this week. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. It's a party now. This reminds me a little bit of the... um, old-fashioned cartoons that would play before movies, like let's let's all go to the lobby type things. So yeah, maybe we got a dancing soda and a box of popcorn there and some of the kernels are falling out as he sashays his way into the lobby. What I enjoyed this week. You know, I mentioned movies, but I'm actually going to talk about a book. I love reading. I read a lot of books. That's right. Does it make me a better person? Yes, it does. If you uh, don't read as much as I am, does that mean you're not as good a person? It sure does. (laughs) That's not true. But I read a good one. Man, oh man, this week, a nasty uh, little book called The Troop by Nick Cutter. The Troop. Man, oh man. This was actually recommended to me by comedian Nick Griffin. He and I uh, share a love of horror, and so we often talk about what we... I've been, you know, what we've watched recently and enjoyed, and 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 he's also a reader. So we talk, uh, you know, whenever I see him, I'll say, "Hey, have you read anything cool?" And he recommended the troop, and boy, was he right! This is a, uh, this is a wild book. A scoutmaster takes, uh, well, every year he takes a group of boys to the woods and they camp out. And this year, 
Uh, they get an uninvited guest, a stranger stumbles upon them, and he is, boy, is he ill. He's got something real, real wrong with him. And uh, sure, you know, um, sure enough, he starts to spread it. And these kids have to try to survive that and each other. And uh, it gets brutal. <laughs> this one's not for the faint of heart and not for the uh, um, weak stomached either. This is uh, it, it, it's this is a nastier book, but it's so well written. And, uh, well, Stephen King is on uh, record as saying it scared the hell out of him. And it gave me the creeps, that's for sure. It, it's pretty horrifying. But it's a good read. It's a quick read. It's a smart read. It's uh, an emotional read. And I think it'll bring you back to uh, some of your childhood a little bit of what it was like to be a kid, at, uh, you know, a, a young adolescent. And, and how... Man, it's interesting to think, hey, how would I have handled this situation or what would I have done here? And um, if you love horror, you're going to enjoy The Troop by Nick Cutter, a pseudonym. I don't know uh, Nick Cutter's real name. I haven't looked up to see who he actually is, but I know he's written a few horror horror novels. And uh, this is the first one of his that I've read. And uh, it is a, a fake name. It's a pen name that he uses for these horror novels. And I look forward to reading his others because the troop sure was good. It's, uh, but it's like I said, it's a tough one. It's violent and uh, pretty gnarly. So, uh, but it's good. The troop by Nick Cutter. Check it out if that's uh, if that's your thing. Um, man, it's been a wild two weeks visiting with you. I- I've spent uh, the last two weeks. Uh, well, answering one question, and uh, hopefully I'm answering it in um, as concise and entertaining a way possible. I'm going to pull it up here. I'm just going to read the question again. It's a very, uh, it's a big question, and, and, and it deserves a big answer. It comes to us from Dustin, uh, and he says, It sounds like you have done a lot of different things professionally over the years. Did you ever feel like your life had no direction because of all the different hats you've You've worn. If so, how did you actively refine and focus your life to get you on the professional path that made you happy? <laughs> I've said it every week since this question came up. That's a that is a uh, that's a big question. Well, the quick answer is um, no. I I haven't felt like I've been directionless, even though I've done all these other jobs, because I've always had the same end game, which is to entertain for a living in one way or another. And I've talked about how I've had these different jobs to sort of pay the bills while I've been chasing that dream. And the dream has uh, shifted to and fro or, uh, well, kind of all in all, di- all directions from uh, stand-up comedy to writing plays and movies and TV to uh, wanting to direct and wanting to act and uh, all this stuff. But it all boils down to wanting to be creative and to entertain professionally. Radio has been a, a big dream of mine since I was um, a kid. And yeah, so I left, the, I last, last left you, I was still in Korea. I was teaching English over there and I did so for a, a couple years and I taught from kindergarten to high school. I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to uh, recap a lot of that. You can listen to the prior episode about, about all of that. But many of you have asked questions about Korea. And so I would, before we leave Korea and go back to the States, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about not just teaching over there, but what it was like to live there. Uh, the main reason I went over there was to save money, um, essentially live with no bills, and that way I could save money, pay off some debts, and when I got back to America, hit the ground running in trying to start a career in stand-up comedy. So I taught, and uh, I taught Monday through Friday and sometimes Saturdays as well. But when I wasn't teaching, I was uh, working on a script, one in particular, um, and I was writing some stand-up. And I, uh, well, I was living living over there and having a lot of fun. So some of the things um, that you wanted to know about, I'd like to discuss. Um, some, well, I mentioned a, uh, a Korean teacher named Lil, or I'm sorry, <laughs> Nil, um, 
who, uh, well, she's now maybe infamous in this podcast for having uh, <laughs> whipped, <laughs> essentially, three of her students. Some of you had asked, what did those students do to deserve such a, such a punishment? Because corporal punishment, at least in 06, 2006, 2005, was still a thing over there. I don't know what they did. I, I, I think I asked, and I think it was like that they, they wouldn't stop talking or something, but I don't remember for sure. <laughs> but I also described Nil as being this incredibly sexy uh, Korean woman, and a lot of you asked if I had ever hooked up with her or asked her out or anything like that. And the answer is no. Quite honestly, she looked to be a lot of work. She was, she was incredibly... Um, uh, you know, I guess what you would call high maintenance. She also had a boyfriend um, who I would kind of laugh with some of the other people, you know, the other teachers. But boy, that guy's got his hands full. So, um, yeah, anyway, she was uh, nice, but she was certainly um, she certainly seemed <laughs> I, uh, it being with her had to have been somewhat of a job as well. <laughs> But I did have a girlfriend over there for a while, and she lived in the apartment next to mine, and her name was Nam Hui. You would pronounce it like H-W-E-E, Nam, as in Vietnam, although she was Korean, uh, Nam Hui. And um, I met her because I, she had a son, a young son who uh, wanted to learn English. And so I started tutoring him. Which is illegal, but I can tell you this because I'm not over there anymore. When you are uh, hired by a school, as I was, a private English academy in Korea, it's technically against the law to teach outside of that academy. And um, uh, But it was also very commonplace because it was good extra money. I mean, I think I got like... 60 bucks an hour just teaching this kid English um, out of a textbook, you know, uh, two times a week. So it was good uh, running around money. It was a good extra money. And so I did it. And Nam Hui, his mom, and I, uh, I mean, grew to like each other. And we dated for a few months. And <laughs> And it was fun. She barely spoke English. I barely spoke Korean. So the communication was actually uh, pretty great between us because there was no room for interpretation. Um, we we just had to rely solely on – we had to just take each other at face value. So there was no reading into things, one of us might say, because uh, – we had to just take everything quite literally. So all of that sort of subtext in a relationship that can get you in trouble, <laughs> none of that existed. So it was uh, it was pretty great. It was very honest and very fun. It was light. It was not a heavy relationship. We were not in love. We were not um, meant to be together. We were not – well, we were – I mean, I don't even think we could say that we were boyfriend and girlfriend necessarily. Well – I don't remember if she um, referred to me. I, I don't remember. But uh, looking back, it was just kind of a light, fun thing. And, um, uh, you know, I don't want to get into uh, too 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 much of the, uh, the private aspect of uh, our relationship. But there, <laughs> again, our language was so limited with each other that it was, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's, I, I I feel compelled to share it because it, here's what would happen after we were dating for a few weeks, um, and we were comfortable with each other, and we it became a, a more physical relationship. She would uh, often just come over to my apartment with uh, a snack. <laughs> she knew me, and so she would uh, have like, uh, for instance, she would have a tray of fruit that she um, had just cut up. This happened a lot, and she would knock on my door, and I would answer it. <laughs> and uh, I'm not I'm not lying. This was just the way that we had to communicate. She would uh, be holding this tray of fruit, and she would look at me and say, "Do you want some fruit and an orgasm?" I'm not. That's exactly how it would go because that's 
<laughs> it sounds so ridiculous, but that, and of course I would say, well, yes, both sound delightful. And she would come in and we would eat some uh, kiwi or whatever, and then we <laughs> and then we would progress into other things. And it was, it's so, so comically straightforward that it almost sounds like it's um, perfunctory or uh, just that there was little uh, romance or enjoyment to it. That's not the case. It was a blast. But it was, uh, it's just weird that we had to talk so frankly like that. Because the word orgasm in Korean is the exact same, it's it's the same word in, in English and uh, Korean. So is condom. That That is the same word in um, Korean and uh, English. But <laughs> I, I never... Never used it. Uh, that's a lie. Uh, so anyway, um, enough of that silliness. But yeah, it was a. It was a. So I did have a dating life over there. Some of you wanted to know about that. I wasn't what a lot of Korean were uh, women were looking for. Korean women love. Um, and it, you know what? It may sound like I'm going to be speaking in stereotypes and, and broad generalizations, which is. Uh, redundant a generalization by definition is broad but it's it's uh I, I i'm not this is just how this is how it was korean women loved blonde hair and blue eyes and big noses that's that was those all three of those things considered incredibly hot to korean women because those are not features that you typically find on Korean men. They were, it, that's a very that's an a that's a very exotic look, and of course it it is over there. You know what I mean? It's um, and so I have dark hair. I have dark features. I don't have a particularly big nose, and I have brown eyes. I wasn't uh, that interesting to a lot of Korean women. Um, I you know I wasn't the uh, well, the Adonis that I am in America. I <laughs> so um, I didn't, uh, I, you know, and, and I was also overweight. Um, and not a lot of Korean women are. <laughs> so they were probably, I probably, they were probably a little um, intimidated by my <laughs> physical stature. <laughs> But if you were skinny and had a big nose and you were blonde and had blue eyes, you were the hottest dude they've ever seen. And they let you know it. I mean, boy, oh boy, you, you had to you had to break a lot of hearts if that's what you look like over there. And I had many, I had friends over there that that's exactly what they look like. And um, yeah, they were adored, just adored. And um, yeah, so I did uh, go on a couple dates with uh Korean women besides Nam Hui and um they were just fun. They were it was a good time. It was just I I really I had a good time over there. The people were very sweet, um very interested in uh in you know, they were very curious about Western culture and every now and again I would meet uh, a Korean person, typically an older Korean person, who would give me the business. I would just be—I'd be walking down the street, and they would—they would walk out of a shop or something, and they would uh, walk up to me. And I mean, you could tell—I couldn't understand what they were saying, but they were yelling at me and just spewing venom. And uh, I would just kind of stand there and take it. And then, event, you know, walk off. And as I'm walking off, they were just, they I could hear them yelling at me for uh, half a mile. And what was I going to do? I have no idea why they're yelling at me. They probably have a pretty good reason. Um, a, a lot of older Korean folks believe that Americans are the reason that there's a North and South Korea. They think that if we left and, uh, you know, got all of our military out of there, that those two countries or those two regions could um, exist peacefully and, and that the Americans are the only things keeping them from doing so. Look, it's not the case. It's just simply not the case. <laughs> but um, who? how could I ever argue? Well, first off, I couldn't speak their language. Second, uh, who am I to argue with them about that? 
I, there's a good chance that if uh, a Korean army were sitting at the border of uh, Virginia and West Virginia and those two states hated each other <laughs> or they had trouble, that I might go, you know what, if that army left, maybe these two states could get along. <laughs> Who's to say? I don't know. But um, anyway, they would, uh, boy, that would happen every now and again. And it was kind of, I, it was never pleasant. Um, but it was just, you know, something you, I got used to. And uh, certainly I just grin and bear it. I mean, what? yeah. Speaking of North Korea, many of you wanted to know if I had any experiences there. I uh, I did not. The, the city I was living in, was a good three, four hours drive from the DMZ. Um, uh, at, yeah, the South Korean and North Korean border. And um, I was also in Korea at a time. George uh, W. Bush was still president and North Korea was part of the axis of evil. And that pissed them off. The North Koreans did not like being labeled uh, in that group. And so they banned all American tourists. Now, if I were Dennis Rodman or whatever, I probably could have gone over. Um, or if I threw a bunch of money down, I probably could have gone over. And I was somewhat interested in going because it's just sounded so crazy. What what I mean is, um, if you were Canadian, uh, some Canadian friends actually went over there. And the way it worked was that uh, you could schedule a trip to North Korea, and you would go over, and the entire time you would have two armed escorts. So these uh, North Korean soldiers with with giant guns would be walking around with you, and they would tell you what you could see. So they would go, today we're going to the zoo. And (laughs) you went to the zoo if you wanted to or you didn't. Or they would go, hey, today we're going to some palace, and that's what you did. They, They dictated your trip for you. And they liked uh, these tourists because they spent money. They would go over there and they would spend money and, uh, you know, help their economy. Um, but it's also but apparently it's just nuts. You, some of you may have seen like these uh, global maps where they show electricity, um, you know, from space and all these countries are lit up. But over North Korea, it's just black because there's like no apparently that's that's sort of the that's i mean apparently that was very evident when you were over there there were there was nobody in the streets nobody in stores nobody i mean just a bizarre thing so i was curious about that but i couldn't go over and you know what i i honestly don't know that i would have because quite frankly i didn't want to support the north korean economy i didn't like i well i i'll be honest i hate the way that that country uh, operates and is run. There are terrible atrocities going on over there, and I miss the days of a good uh, CIA-led coup. (laughs) I mean, the leaders over there are, well, murdering the the people, and and, uh, whether it be through starvation or uh, other means... It's simply not good, and I didn't want to support it. So, would I like to have seen it? Yes, but it would have. I think it would have been miserable. There, you know, boy, especially if I had to go. If I ever went out into some of the North Korean countryside, which I don't think was available on some of the tours or whatever, but um, to see these people just uh, living their lives, toiling in the rice paddies, only to give every bit of their rice to the government and then never see any of it. And be starving is just insane to me. So I, I didn't want to, uh, yeah, I'm glad I didn't partake. I, I Again, my curiosity was strong, but I don't think it overshadowed my um, <laughs> desire to not take part in giving uh, those that, that government $1. So um, I didn't hear anything from North Korea while I was over there. You know, they've done a lot of missile testing and shot off rockets and stuff. And I, I don't remember that going on while I was over there. Um, if it was, I certainly didn't witness or hear anything again. I was too far away. But I don't remember even hearing on the news that that um, was happening at that time. It probably was, but I just don't re- I don't recall that. Um, so yes, there. You know, getting yelled at randomly on the street and. Uh, 
the North Korea situation, I never felt a threat from them because I always felt like they'd be insane to attack the South. But um, those are bleaker aspects of being over there and, and living over there. But a lot of it was incredibly pleasant. I uh, went out all the time to movies and to bars and dance clubs. And they were great. We had a ball. One of my favorite things to do was to go to a nori bong, which essentially means music room. These were uh, karaoke rooms. Now, here you go to a karaoke bar and it's wide open and somebody sings and the whole bar hears it. Nori bongs, I thought, were a little uh, more fun. You got your own room. You were, it was like a small room and you would go in and there'd be a giant screen and you had your own server that would come in and bring beer and uh, soju, which is the main alcoholic beverage over there in Korea. And uh, it would be like your own private karaoke party. And it was just a blast. You'd sit in there for a couple of hours and uh, be singing with friends and drinking. And then when you walked out, you went, ah, I didn't realize I drank that <laughs> that much. Because all of a sudden you were hit with being on a bustling street and you're like, can I maneuver this? Um, but just a ton of laughs, a lot of fun. They also had these great things. Um, oh, boy. I don't remember what they were called. I know bong was at the end because that, again, means essentially it means room. But they were places that you could go watch a movie. So they had movie theaters, of course, where you could go see uh, first-run movies. And I did that a lot. I would go see... Um, you know, big American movies uh, that hit, uh, and the reason I would I, I say it like that is I didn't I did go see one Korean movie once, but we had no idea what was going on. My buddy and I went to see it because the the trailer was so funny, just the the way um, the it looks like it looked like a, a just a broad comedy, and we couldn't handle how funny it looked because it was just ridiculous, and so we ended up going to see it. And did and had no idea what was being said or anything, but we had a ball. <laughs> the other movie that we couldn't see and we actually walked out of was March of the Penguins. It was a huge hit, and we had read about it, and we were like, we got to go see this. But we didn't realize, of course, that when we went to go see March of the Penguins, that it wasn't going to be Morgan Freeman talking. It was going to be the most famous Korean guy talking. <laughs> so we understood nothing and uh, eventually went, you know what? We're not getting... In fact, we started laughing so hard at the thought of we were watching these penguins do silly things and just listening to this Korean language that we had no idea what was being said, and we got the giggles, and we were laughing so hard, like doubled over laughing, that we added, we ended up walking out after like 20 minutes because we were disturbing the families around us. So, uh, But the American movies were always in... English. They they uh, had Korean subtitles, so we could go see uh, those. So it was, um, yeah, it did that. But they had these movie rooms where you would uh, pay to go into this small room with a giant screen, um, like one of the walls, the whole wall was the screen, and you would rent a movie and watch it right there. And they sold snacks and soda and beer or whatever, and you could sit in this little room and watch uh, a movie. So I did that all the time. It was it was fun, and I really caught up on a lot of Korean cinema when I uh, did that, which was terrific. They have a wonderful cinema history and um, catalog. If you get a chance, check some out. Some of you might be familiar with movies like Old Boy or The Host. Um, uh, boy, they've got a uh, just uh, well. The uh, last Best Picture winner was a Korean movie, wasn't it? Parasite. So yeah, if you enjoyed that, man, keep uh, keep keep exploring uh, Korean cinema. What else? Yeah, so I mean, I, I had a lot of friends, and uh, I loved teaching, and I loved hanging out, and I loved going on trips, little trips. I never uh, went uh, to Thailand, and I never went to Japan or anything like that because I figured, hey, I'm in Korea. I want to see as much of Korea as I can. So we would go up to Seoul, and we would go down to Busan. And uh, which is a huge uh, port city. And we would walk through these giant seafood markets and we would go shopping in these big uh, sort of outdoor marts. And, um, oh, boy, just uh, quite a thing. And after, you know, close to two years, I went, you know, it's time to go home. I've saved up some money. I've paid off some debts. I'm a little burned out because um, I didn't get days off. 
occasionally there'd be a Korean holiday or uh, an Asian holiday, a Chinese New Year or something, where we would get a day off. But I think the most days off in a row we ever got were two. And I don't mean I'm not counting Saturdays and Sundays. But we just and you couldn't take vacation. So I, I mean, it was uh, I, I was a little burned out. So it was time to go home. And uh, that last night in Korea, I was in my apartment, and uh, it was on the tenth uh, or twelfth floor. There were Korea. Obviously, there's not a lot of land, so they build up, and uh, every building was super tall. And uh, yeah, I was on the tenth or twelfth, whatever the floor was, uh, but it was high up, and I. I was packed, and uh, my flight was in like six hours, so I knew I was going to have to get up in two hours <laughs> so that I could make the the bus ride to Seoul and get checked in and everything. And I, uh, well, I walked to my, my window, and I opened it up, and I, I just looked out at the city that I had lived in for two years, Jeonju, and I uh, just thought back on everything I'd been through, and I... I thought forward to seeing my family and um, my friends and, you know, looked forward towards uh, doing comedy. And uh, really, this was sort of a um, uh, a break from my from from my life in America and my aspirations in America. And and uh, it it. Uh, Yes, I just I reflected on what I had done in Korea and what I was going to do going back, and I cried. I I spent uh, yeah a good few minutes just sort of crying, overlooking overlooking that beautiful uh, modern yet rural city, and it was uh, boy, it's a moment I won't ever forget because it was just a flood of memories and anticipation. And I don't regret going for one second. It was uh, it, w- it was just a wonderful period in my life. And I, heck, hopped on a plane, you know, uh, that next day. And it was it's a long flight. It, I think total it was about 22 hours travel. Um, and that included like a four-hour layover in Japan. Um, and it was exhausting. I had a middle seat. <laughs> oh man, that was a tough flight home. I, uh, was fairly hung over because I had packed up and, uh, this was before my, uh, looking out the window crying session. I had hit a couple, I had hit a couple bars with some friends who I, you know, knew that I wasn't going to see again and knew that I probably wasn't going to stay in touch with. And that's a weird thing, knowing that, hey, I, I've, I've been, I've had a really close life with these people. You know, uh, fellow teachers, other friends, um, students. And I, I went, you know what, I'm never going to see these people again. And some of these people, we even exchanged, you know, email addresses and MySpace pages or whatever. But I just, you know how it is. You know, kind of deep in the back of your mind, man, oh, man. We're not. I'm, we're not going to stay in touch, and that's yeah. Um, but anyway, I, so we went out. We went out and had a celebration for my my last night there. And uh, yeah, so that next day on the plane, I was hungover. I was in a middle seat, and uh, it was not comfortable. <laughs> I'm not a comfortable flyer anyway, and this was pretty rough. So. Oh, boy, and we had the layover in Japan and then landed in Chicago, and I had a layover in O'Hare. And uh, that's not a fun I – do, I do not care for O'Hare. <laughs> it's it's too busy. It's always under construction, and um, I just wanted to get home. So finally I did. Landed in St. Louis, and uh, my parents picked me up, and boy, we went to my brother's house, and the whole family was there, and it was just terrific to see them and be back. And I had some money. I had a little change in my pocket. I had about, well, I had uh, thousands of dollars. I think it was like $8,000 or something. And I had a lot of it. uh, I flew with a lot of it strapped to my body because you had to. uh, Now, while I was living in Korea, I was every month. I had a bank, of course, over there. And I was sending money back. But you could only send a certain amount 
before you were like heavily taxed or fined uh, from the back. So, there was something going on where I could only send a certain amount home. And when you fly with money, you can only fly with a certain amount. It can't be over a certain amount. I was over that amount, and so I had a lot of this Korean cash strapped to my body in like one of those money belt things. And I was kind of nervous walking through um, customs, (laughs) knowing that they could take and go, hey, what the hell is this about? But uh, that's what I did. And um, I exchanged all that money and... uh, put it in my bank uh, at home and proceeded. And I went, you know what? I've got a chunk of change here. I can now um, live off of while I pursue stand-up. That's what I'm going to do. I want to be a stand-up comedian and get paid to do that and then move to L.A. and write and act and do stand-up. I, I kind of thought stand-up would be the way I got discovered. That's what my, my uh, hope was. And that uh, then I could be one of those guys like a Kevin Hart um, who could act and, and uh, also go out and do stand-up and stuff like that. Now, I, first off, Kevin Hart wasn't famous then, um, but I also knew that that was unlikely. But so long as I was doing anything in that sphere, I, uh, I, would, I would be happy. So I moved in with my, uh, one of my younger brothers, John, who had uh, a two-bedroom apartment. I moved in with him, and I really started – Focusing on stand-up, going to every open mic I could, and befriending uh, comedians, some uh, who were already professional comedians working, like Greg Warren and Nikki Glaser and uh, Tommy Jonigan. They were all in the St. Louis area at the time, and um, just watched them and kept trying to get better and uh, started getting hosting gigs, and uh, I did all this. And that $8,000 I had ran out in about three months. (laughs) Just from uh, a few things. Like, I remember I got home in my car, like, the truck that I had immediately needed tires. And just things came up. I I didn't realize how little money that was. (laughs) It may not have been three. It may have been, you know, four or five or whatever. But it went quick. And I wasn't just wasting it. I was just living and uh, well, some of it I probably wasted. And uh, but it, um, yeah, it went quick. So I went, oh man, I'm I'm just now sort of uh, making small ripples in the St. Louis comedy scene. There's talk of me, you know, becoming a, a weekend MC and all this stuff. And uh, I don't want to stop doing it. And serendipitously, an old friend called. Um, a really good friend, uh, his name's Tim and he, he, he worked at Rawlings and he said, Hey, I know you're back in town. I'm looking for somebody to run this small sub warehouse for me and to go out on the road every now and again with Rawlings. And, uh, it would be kind of a part-time thing. And it was, I couldn't believe it. The timing was perfect. I was almost out of money. And here was this job that was going to allow me to still do comedy. So I said, oh, my gosh, Tim, this is great. And so I took it, of course. And, uh, yeah, I ran this little warehouse. It was just me, and shipments of things would come in, and I would forklift them around and uh, every now and again go out on the road. I, uh, I was part of a department, a marketing department, that oversaw these um, booths in some baseball stadiums where you could get a laser-engraved bat or you could buy a baseball glove. And I would help uh, ship to those things and occasionally go out to them. And um, do other stuff like that. Uh, we would go to the All-Star game and we would go to certain things where we we would, um, yeah, just sell some, some product. And I, I would do presentations, uh, how to sew a baseball, how baseballs are hand-sewn and how bats are turned on a lathe and uh, talk about uh, pretty much just promote Rawlings. It was marketing promotions. And... When I wasn't doing that, I was doing comedy, and I was really focused on stand-up, and I was slowly but surely getting better, and I was getting work in St. Louis, and as the work, the stand-up increased, my time and uh, work with Rawlings decreased, and um, this, you know, I, I'm simplifying it a bit because this all happened over the course of four or five years. Um. 
if you're going to get into stand-up, look, it's not going to be a quick, typically it's not a quick uh, ride, all right? You're not going to make any money for a little bit. And when you do start making money, it's not livable. You're not going to be able to live off of it. Keep your job as long as you can. And that's what I did. And um, eventually I started getting what's coveted by all new comedians, road work. I was asked to work clubs out of St. Louis. Um, And, uh, boy, it was just, just wonderful. I need to tell you this. My main goal... Uh, besides um, doing comedy and entertainment professionally. That was the big, big end goal. But my big comedy goal was to, a lot of guys, uh, they wanted to be on Letterman. They wanted to be on Conan. They wanted to uh, do The Tonight Show. Uh, Yes, I would have liked to have done things, do those things. Um, But I didn't want to do them nearly as much as I wanted to be on the Bob and Tom show, I had grown up listening to it in St. Louis, syndicated there. And I would buy the CDs, and I loved it. I loved the Bob and Tom show. To me, they were doing more for stand-up comedy than any late-night show was. And uh, they were doing, they were promoting guys that I thought were a lot better and a lot funnier than the guys, the people typically being promoted on Comedy Central, let's say. Um, now again, these are generalizations, but I mean it. I, I, the the Bob and Tom comedians I had more in uh, common with, uh, in terms of uh, comedic philosophy, than I did with a lot of the people on uh, TV. And it was so it was my main goal to get on the Bob and Tom show as a guest. And after a few years, um, it it happened. I. <laughs> I'll never forget. I uh, got some road work. My, one of my first road gigs, I was going to feature at a, a brand new comedy club in Bloomington, Indiana called The Comedy Attic. Oh, you know what? That's a lie. It was called The Funny Bone. <laughs> um, when the, the Comedy Attic is now renowned around uh, the country as one of the premier comedy clubs and... Uh, my gosh, they just as recently as two months ago had Brian Regan there who could fill any theater in the country um, three nights in a row. I mean, if not, and he he wanted to work the Comedy Attic, and that's just how that club is. Everybody, everybody wants to work it. But when it started, it was, it was affiliated with the St. Louis Funny Bone, and... It was called the the uh, the funny bone, and essentially what the owner did, um, he licensed the name, and uh, so he paid a fee every month to be the funny bone because it had some cachet to it, and he also the the booker of the St. Louis Funny Bone was also then booking the comedy or <laughs> the, the the Bloomington Funny Bone, and so I uh, in a, like its second or third week. Um, I was asked to, uh, t- I was booked to feature there. And um, I was featuring for a newer headliner who had just come off of a, a, a good run on Last Comic Standing, Amy Schumer. And um, <laughs> we had a tremendous weekend. It was, uh, it was awesome. It was one of my first feature weekends. It seemed to be one of her... Um, early road weekends headlining because, um, and I don't think she'd have any issue with me saying this, she had uh, notes with her on stage um, that she would uh, consult every now and again. And she was working on probably some new material and stuff like that. And um, we had a terrific time. We had a lot of fun. We were both really excited to be there. And we were really excited to be a part of this brand new club with these amazing owners, Jared and Dana, who clearly loved comedy. A lot of uh, comedy club managers and owners love money. <laughs> and so they treat it as, uh, as what it is, quite honestly, a bar. Comedy clubs are bars. They are designed to sell drinks. Um, and of course, they're designed to uh, provide a night's entertainment, but their money is coming from food and drinks. And um, so, yes, the, I, I, a lot of times that's how they're operated. 
Well, the Comedy Attic is operated as a showcase for comedy. Now, of course, they they make money on uh, liquor or beer or whatever and, and food. But Jared and Dana are two of the biggest comedy nerds and uh, biggest fans of stand-up that I've ever met. And uh, they love the art. They love it. And so they um, showcase who they think to be or the, the finest uh, comedians and uh, the, the most exciting up-and-comers. And for a while, I, I was kind of considered one of them. I don't know. <laughs> they liked me. And, uh, I, well, we, we grew to love each other. They're, they're, they're dear, dear friends of mine. And um, Amy, I haven't talked to, uh, boy, in, in a long, long time. But we had a really, really nice weekend. We had a lot of fun. And uh, she was terrific to work with. And uh, anyway, it w- it's from my relationship with the Comedy Attic that I first got on the Bob and Tom show. Jared, it was like my third or fourth time being at the Comedy Attic, reached out to the Bob and Tom show and uh, had some clips of mine and said, you should have this guy in. And I was told that Tom watched the clips and enjoyed them and said, yes, yeah, we'll have him in. And I remember I was in Oklahoma City working at a temporary Rawlings store in this dying mall. And I got the call from Jared saying, hey, you're they want you uh, to be on. And oh, my gosh, I just I couldn't. I This was it. This was my chance. Uh, th- th- you know, uh, this was my my chance to make. People who have made me laugh consistently throughout my uh, teenage years and young adult years (laughs) into adulthood. Um, I mean, hell, 20 plus years they they were making me laugh. And uh, uh, this was my chance to maybe make them laugh. And I was going in. So the the week arrived. My week at the Comedy Attic arrived. They eventually... uh, Stopped, for for many good reasons, stopped licensing the Funny Bone name, went with the Comedy Attic, and the rest is history. Um, but this week, I was going to be opening for Tommy Jonigan, already a Bob and Tom favorite and a friend of mine. So uh, the week arrived. Tommy and I shared a hotel room the night before um, and kind of went over what we were going to do on the show, on the Bob and Tom show the next morning. Barely slept. And then we got up and uh, headed to the studio, and my gosh, we pulled up, and there, there we were. I was looking at the Bob and Tom studio, and out on the patio was Bob smoking a cigarette, and, which, if you're going to see, I mean, that's seeing Bob in his elements, in a, in a sense. <laughs> and I was just, um, now I had seen these guys in person before I'd gone to some live shows uh, in St. Louis, um, some live concerts. So I had seen them all in person, but here I was going to sort of, and I had met Bob. Uh, he had signed a CD for me, and uh, but here I was going. I was on, I was in on their turf, and I was uh, going to be a guest on their show. And we go in, and Bob is so excited to see Tommy. They were very very good friends, and um, he was a favorite of which, of course, he's one of the funniest people on the planet. And so we go in, and uh, I sit in the green room, and they they get they get Tommy into the uh, the studio, and they're having a ball, and the show's going on, and um, and uh, slowly but surely I realize <laughs> the show is almost over, and then uh, <laughs> I think it was Dean, the producer, came in and said, "Hey, we're gonna ha- we're gonna have to uh, well, we're bumping you." <laughs> They uh, my first my first um, appearance on the Bob and Tom show didn't happen, and my friends and family were listening, and uh, I I just didn't I didn't they were having so much fun with Tommy and doing other things that I just I didn't get on the air, and it was in uh, hindsight probably the best thing that could have happened because I was so nervous. Um, I had material that I thought was uh, pretty good, but what ended up happening was, first off, Tom was super apologetic. They don't do that. They don't typically bump guests. It just doesn't, uh, yeah, they they don't do it. 
Um, this was just one of those weird things where it was a it got to be a busy morning, and uh, they didn't know me, and they didn't uh, have room for me at the time. So, um, <laughs> Tom, after the show, was very apologetic. He said, the next time you come through, uh, we'll have you on. And I knew that it would be a good six months or a year because that's just how it works before I would be back in the area. And so, I, um, but in hindsight, what it did was it allowed me to get over the nerves of the initial as a fan, the initial uh, sort of excitement and shock and joy of being at the location, the studio itself, and seeing these people in the hallways um, and uh, and meeting them. And it, 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 so I got over that. I, I mean, I was able to experience that. And it gave me six months or a year, whatever, the next time I came on, to get even better material, to have a, a better act, to try to, to, try to uh, showcase my, my comedy for them. And, well, that's uh, what happened. And I'll kind of talk, a a lot of people don't know the story of me getting a a permanent job on the Bob and Tom show. And um, uh, so I'll talk about that next week. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll discuss how that happened in, in, uh, from my point of view, because, um, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'll do. Um, in the meantime, something, well, it's time for something that we should work on this week. What to work on this week? Ah, yes. What a celebration we're going to have because we're going to better ourselves as we are. We, uh, what, what have we been working on since, uh, I started this silly little podcast? Uh, we're not, we're not tailgating anymore. We're uh, reporting good service, letting people know when they do a good job, letting their supervisors know when they do a good job, and a few other things. Well, this week, some of you are doing, you're, you're, you're very steadfast at this, and I applaud you. I'm good at this. I'm not great, all right? But that's changing, and I'll tell you why. What I want us all to work on this week is flossing every day. I know. It's a pain. It's, uh, it's a chore, isn't it? But do it. And here's why I say this. The other night, again, I'm good, not great. So I'm going to say I floss every other day. I'll be honest with you. It was every other day. Sometimes it would get to be maybe two or three days I didn't floss. And I would know that because I would floss and my sink would look like it was uh, a crime scene. So not proud of these facts. It's gross. Uh, A little embarrassing that I don't have the... um, well, I wasn't being adult enough to take care of my uh, my teeth, but I certainly brush every day, but I wasn't flossing every day, and now it's going to be every day because the other night I flossed, and do you ever have you ever flossed before and you went, hey, well, here's the thing. I didn't want to floss. I, 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 I was like, I, I don't want to do it. I'm just going to go to bed. I'm just going to brush and then go to bed. But I went, now I kind of feel something, so I should floss. <laughs> and I flossed between these two teeth, and the biggest piece of meat came out. And I went, my God, if I hadn't flossed, that would have sat in there and rotted. And just what was I thinking by saying, I'm not going to floss tonight? And it really gave me the creeps. It bummed me out. I went, man, I could. How many nights have I gone where I didn't floss and something like that has been between my teeth and it just rotted until it wasn't there anymore? <laughs> I'm, I hope I'm not. Well, I'm, this is gross. So I probably am grossing you out. All I'm saying is I'm now flossing every night. I'm not going to floss in the morning. Why would I do that? I didn't eat anything in my sleep. I, I'll, I'll brush, but I'm not. Anybody who fl- wakes, if you floss at night and then you wake up and you floss in the morning, you're doing too much. You're uh, overachieving. <laughs> but I am flossing every night, and I hope you will too. Floss. And occasionally I'll floss during the day when there's something like really, you know, an apple skin or whatever. And, but anyway, that's what we're going to work on this week. We're going to floss. Uh, I worry, uh, and I don't need your. Um, uh, I don't need you to write me and go, no, 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 you're doing great. That's not what this is about. But I do, I do hope that uh, this sort of trip down uh, my, my professional life has been interesting. 
it should conclude next week. <laughs> Not my professional life, but this sort of. I'm hoping that next week we'll get to uh, today. You know what? I, does that make sense? That we'll get to where I am present, presently. Well, that doesn't work either because presently actually means soon. <laughs> I should have ended this podcast two minutes ago. I'm just going to do it right now.